Hello, story lovers. I'm Laurel McCarg, and you're listening to Alligator Preserves. This is the episode you've all been waiting for, even though you might not know it. In today's episode, I'm going to interview my husband, Mike McCarg. He's a four-time lead man, but I'm going to ask him about more than just races, so don't go away. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic, because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. Mike McCarg, welcome to Alligator Preserves. I have a full disclosure to make to my audience. Mike is my husband. (laughs) He's rolling his eyes right now. (laughs) Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with me about races and other things. So, Mike, I'm going to ask the first question that I ask everyone. Why ultra race? Well, I started... Actually, you are responsible. Uh Uh-oh. Because if you recall, you know, I had a wrestling football team sport background and your company commander said hey let's do 10ks and i go 10ks holy like i'm gonna run six miles no this this is back at fort hood the first place we were stationed together and my company commander was captain Catherine carr i remember her she was a teeny little thing if you're out there captain carr i don't know how far you went in your military career but yeah you told me one of the first weekends that I was going to do this 10K race with you, and I mentioned it to my then-husband. Yeah, it seemed like something to do, something to occupy Saturday with. And after that, uh, I got hooked on running. And after 10Ks, I thought, well, maybe I should do a marathon. And I did. I thought I should never do another one (laughs) after that. That was the White Rock Marathon in Dallas, Texas, it rained the entire day. I remember that. It was, I don't know, in the low 40s, if not 30s. And that was before gels or any type of... Gore-Tex. Well, I wore a tank top <laughs> and shorts and almost was a popsicle when I finished. <laughs> and, you know, the proverbial wall, I think that was my first marathon. It ran 306, which is respectable for... First marathon. Mm-hmm. And then went to the advanced course. And since I was separated from you, what else would I do except for race every weekend? And there was a <laughs> lot of really good folks there. Bill Block, who is sponsored by New Balance. We used to go to the track uh, after uh, the advanced course class and run quarters. And he was an amazing athlete. He was uh, obviously sponsored, so he was amazing. And he really pushed me. And so ran 10Ks, triathlons, and those are entry drugs. Entry drugs to the ultra distances. Yeah. So then it got to doing adventure races, mm-hmm. and they would be 24-hour adventure races. If you remember Frank Sobchak, 
who was 10 years younger than me, was a cadet on the triathlon team when I was the coach. And I re- we reunited uh, when I was a lieutenant colonel and he was a major. And we did a, that race in West Virginia, which you should do a podcast on. I really should because I was crew for that race. And oh my goodness, I really do need to write about that. That was horrendous. <clears throat> I super cried. scary. It was scary and I cried. <laughs> So, and that was another race that it was raining. We could see the rain as we were driving to the race and it didn't stop till we finished the race. 24 hours. It rained so hard. We had buckets. Both of us had to bail our canoe out so it wouldn't swamp. So after that, uh, looking for longer and longer distances. Because why? What was it that made you want to do something more and more difficult? More and more challenging. After you got comfortable with a certain distance or a certain type of race, it wasn't enough. It wasn't difficult enough. It wasn't, you know, you look for, in fact, someone asked me about this on this. This is my 12th race I just finished. Just finished the 12th Leadville Trail 100 mountain bike race. And they go, hey, are you nervous or excited? And I said, I'm excited. And I said, if I tow the the start line and I am not excited, then that's time to look for something else. And so it got to the point where doing 10Ks was passe. And the fastest I did was actually at Ford Ord was almost 35 flat. And I just wasn't going to be too much faster. And they got to be too easy. Mm-hmm. So that le- led to looking for additional challenges, something that when you wake up in the morning, you go, wow, I, I've got to get going. I got to get after it because it's such a big goal. It's so imposing that you know it's going to crush you unless you're prepared. And so not not everyone has that feeling when they get up in the morning of looking for something to crush them. Go back in time to your high school years. I know that your father was your football coach, among other things. And tell me about some of those sessions. Yeah, actually, on Facebook uh, for this 12th race, one of my boyhood friends commented on our, our football practices, which growing up in the Central Valley of California, they were routinely over 100 degrees every day. And we'd be in full uniform in the afternoon sun and you're just losing pounds and pounds of water. But you did it. Those were called double days? Double days because you had practice twice a day. Typically, the morning practice would just be shoulder pads, helmet, but the afternoon practice was always full pads, full full contact. And it didn't matter if you're just pads and helmet. Anyhow, you were sweating like crazy because by the time you end, ended practice, it was in, in the uh, mid-90s. And by the afternoon practice, it was like 110. And so, yeah, you would do those. What did, what did that do for you as an individual? Well, it d- certainly gave you a, a marker, a a touch point where you could go back and say, well, if I could do this, then I can certainly do the next thing. It was, you know, certainly a challenge that, believe me, a lot of people did not make it through. They would just like, I am not going to go through another practice. I'm not going to go through another double practice day. And they just quit. It was too much for them. But I think when you finish any challenge, it's a a building block. It's a, a 
something that you can go back to and say, you know, I did this. Every time you succeed or persevere through a challenge, it's a building, it's a stepping stone to more challenges that you you feel that no matter what's presented in front of you, you're not going to quit. Were you driven since you were little, since before you even knew what racing was? Is this something in your DNA, do you think? Uh, to some degree. I remember like when you talk about going back, way back. So I grew up in a rural, rural area, makes Leadville look like a metropolis. And uh, I was out hiking. So my dad was early 30s with a friend. And I remember running up every hill. And, <laughs> and both of them, who were football coaches, said, well, if you can maintain that that drive and enthusiasm when you get older, you know, you'll be unstoppable. And I, I still remember that that instance where I was smoking them on every hill. Your and, father and someone else? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I think it was uh, Coach John Ratliff. I don't believe he's he's still with us. But. Okay. All right. I somewhat jokingly tell people I know that you were raised by wolves because you grew up in the, I'd say the boonies of Northern California, and you were let out in the morning to play and told when to be home. Yeah, listen to the mill whistle. That was my, at five o'clock, mill whistle. That presumes, of course, that you can hear the mill whistle. Like a lot of times, I'd be so far in the forest that I didn't hear it. And then, you know, much to my chagrin, I'd hear my dad, like, as he would drive out in his truck to to try to find me, yelling. Of course, I knew if I heard his voice, I was really, really in trouble. (laughs) So I'm not sure why... The idea of a watch never occurred to my parents. <laughs> Did they have watches back then in the, I, in the 60s? Sundial, maybe. <laughs> a while ago, you wrote a piece on a website that you developed called elementja.com. And the piece is called Why We Should Suffer and Sacrifice or How Is This Fun? Yeah. Uh, and so the, t- the reason that title is kind of funny, at least for folks who actually know where that comes from is we were we we went to we went to fruta for the fat tire festival we used to go there to ride as well as you know just go to the festival and and you uh, went there with other friends I, from yeah from military people from us northcom <laughs> and so there was a i think it was an aviator and he was riding with us and it was it's it's called the edge loop if you want to look it up it's it's a day of uh and you got to rappel down with your bike it's an event for sure and <laughs> so the guy that's with us you know he we we have no idea when we're going to be finished we're out in the middle of the wilderness and the books cliffs <laughs> he throws his bike down and he goes how is this fun <laughs> And he was white from the sweat that was solidified. And we called him Salt Lake from then on. (laughs) Did he finish the race? It wasn't even a race. It was a self-imposed ordeal that we did. Okay. We just came up with it. And it was this self-imposed thing that we had actually done three years in a row just because it sucked. All right. So this is this is going to lead me into well, a couple of different things. For, first of all, I've heard you mention before, oh, that was that was type 2 fun. What do you mean by type 2 fun and how many types of fun are there? 
So type one fun is, you know, having a beer with your friends or chatting or... Going to a birthday party or... No, that's not fun. (laughs) I don't know. Type one fun is, you know, obvious in the moment. Oh, wow. Immediately satisfying. I like listening to, you know, a band or whatever. You're going to a concert. You're at a... Whatever, right? And you're like, I enjoy this. Type two fun, on the other hand, is something you really have to push through but you know when you're finished that you have actually you've accomplished something or it's fun when you stop. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And a lot of people won't ever experience type 2 fun because they don't want to go through what you have to go through in order to get there to the end where you say, "Oh, wow, that was awesome. I accomplished this." So, as type 2 fun more of a Mental thing? It's, or a more char- personal? it's character building. Character building. So type two fun, and I've got all kinds of examples, but one I, recent one I remember with, with both Nick, our son, and Mike Lamont is when we did the four-pass loop, which is 28 miles. And you, know, you can see the progression of us as we go through the different passes. The first pass, we're all smiling. The second pass... A little less. Third pass, we're all grumpy. The fourth pass, it's lightning. We are running. You try to get as low as possible. It's raining on us. And uh, that picture, every one of us are... In fact, I should give you that picture for the website. You should. You we should. are all grimacing. And <laughs> <laughs> so it was over a marathon distance uh, that we covered. We just decided we're going to do it. Because if you recall, remember the all, only uphill race? They canceled it, right? We all registered for running straight uphill for yes, 12 hours. Yes, yeah. And they canceled. They go, well, what else are we going to do? And what so we came ridiculous up. ridiculous challenge. <laughs> we came up. There weren't enough people that signed up. I thought that was a fun idea. So <laughs> No type of fun. So then we decided, well, let's do that, the four-pass loop. and I, uh, I will have that photo on my website, along with links to anything that we talk about here uh, on LeadvilleLaurel.com. Yeah, it's beautiful. Just if you do it in the fall, just you, you know, be careful of the thunderstorms rolling in because they can be life-threatening. In the afternoon, right. So are there more types of fun after type two? No. No? Just no. type one or type two. It's only there's there are only those two types. And you're you're a type two fun kind of guy from, right. from what I've experienced over the past oh few years. So let me get back to your piece on why we should suffer. You include a quote from Ernest Shackleton, which I think is amazing. And you say, When was the last time you were presented with an invitation like the one posed in Ernest Shackleton's recruiting advertisement for the crew of the Endurance in the Antarctic Expedition? And the quote reads, Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Do you think Shackleton would have signed up for the LT100 Lead Man race series? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Along with your your piece there, you talk about mental toughness. And you've already mentioned a lot about mental toughness and getting over that natural tendency that many people have and I know from personal experience I have 
of feeling really comfortable in your easy chair with a bowl of popcorn on your lap. And the fact that reality TV is giving people maybe a false sense of their own experience with doing something challenging. Do you think that our generation, and I'm talking about you and me and our kids, and I'm talking about those of us in the end of the baby boomer generation, have we made following generations too soft with our knowledge and our wanting to give them experiences Honestly, I just listened to several podcasts which which suggest that's exactly what we we have done. Um, I would say for our individual kids, just because that wasn't really a thing. I mean, if you remember Jake going on hikes within the first hundred meters, he would be like, you know, how, how is, is this, this fun? fun? <laughs> right. And I, and honestly, I don't think, I don't know if I have pictures of this, but I remember taking him on a winter hike in Virginia up to Old Rag and it's in snow. It's November. It's like, so he's, I don't know, eight, yeah. mm-hmm. maybe. Mm-hmm. He's eight. He's like crying like immediately. <laughs> and so, you know, sorry, Jake. <laughs> But, you know, we get all the way to the top of the ridge. It's been night. You know, we've been hiking for hours. And set the tent up. I hiked in hot chocolate for them. And it was like a light switch flipped. And they were all happy. And and they were not happy getting there. Although, you know, Nick was very good about, you know, helping his brother along. And, you know, we watched the sun come up the next morning on top of Old Rag, which was, I think probably worth it. So I've provided (laughs) type two experiences for both of our kids. So I don't know that they are necessarily, they certainly firsthand experienced type two fun. Mm -hmm. Nick went on his 20 mile uh, hike. If you recall, his pack was bigger than he was. (sighs) That also was in the November timeframe as well. You know, everybody, it's it's kind of like old grads at West Point, right? And you know how they always say, "Well, it's much harder for us." And I think it's it's so individual. You can't say, "Well, you know, it was harder for us because we're not in both places simultaneously." Right. Right? So we can't measure that. Mm-hmm. I think there's still tons of challenges for any generation to go out and conquer. In fact, I would say because of the interest in adventure sports and the military, specifically special operations and the expansion of special operations, there are plenty of challenges out there if people want to take those challenges. Can one go too far in the pursuit of stretching their self-imposed limitations? Is there a danger? Well... You've seen, I've seen some folks who've been hospitalized for several days to not, if not a week from some of the events. Do I think that's too far? No, I think it's like, in many cases, you need to plan better next time. (laughs) I don't know that I can say that it's too, too far. Certainly the Leadville, if you're doing Leadman, There are certainly, I know of several people who have been hospitalized for five days Mm -hmm. after it. It's usually due to lack of enough hydration, 
Uh, knowledge of the conditions. Environmental conditions, and both high altitude mm-hmm. as well as you might see that, it, oh, it's going to be 76 degrees. And you go, well, that that's comfortable. Well, it's not comfortable when it's above 10,000 feet and there's no air movement. So you're going to, you know, those types of environmental conditions can make it a lot tougher than you would think. If you're sitting at your easy chair and, and sea level and say 76, well, that's, that could be comfortable. That could be great. Like I'd love to be 76, but at altitude and some of the, you know, at Columbine at 12.6, it's different set of conditions. So you did your first lead man competition and my listeners by now ought to know what the lead man is and I'll have a link to the details of it. But the first year that you did your lead man competition was... 2006. 2006. And do you recall what happened halfway through your very first 100-mile run? Oh, yeah. Super fun. So (laughs) (laughs) this is... I I wish... I hope Laurel's got a picture of this because this is just amazing. So actually, it was pretty... It was moist. It was like foggy, rainy. (laughs) (laughs) Foggy, rainy, and which is perfect conditions for me. Like other people may not like that, but for me... I'm a, a water cooled athlete, and so uh, I'm I'm feeling really good. I'm like cranking up Hope Pass, so I get I'm feeling great. I'm at the 50 mile mark at Winfield. I'm I pull into the crewing area, and I'm looking around for smiling faces of Laurel, Jake, and Nick, and I don't see anybody I recognize. Like no one. No, no cheering, nothing from my my family, and so I'm 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 starting to panic a little bit because they've got all my customized nutrition, and uh, so I, I a friend of ours was was also helping with the crewing, the mother of Wild, Wild Bill, Bill of the the hostel which we stayed at. I stayed there for a week while Laurel was teaching her first year, and I asked I asked her I go. Have you seen Laurel? No, I haven't seen her at all. And I actually, so remember, this is a timed event. And I'm like now in the parking lot, looking, running up and down the parking lot. Now I've already gone 50 miles. I have another 50 miles. So I'm adding extra mileage here, running up and down, looking in cars, looking for the (laughs) truck. And finally I go, I I can't spend any more time here. I really wanted to have a good runtime. So I go and I go, okay, what do you got for hydration? And I open up and it's a young boy, I don't know, 10, 11 years old. And so the the jug is too heavy for him. He pours the fluid on top of All your stuff. my iPod, shorting it out. And so no tunes for the rest of the 50 miles. No smiles, no hugs, no cheers. Oh, not none of that. And whatever they poured in there was heinous. (laughs) It was the worst tasting thing ever. So I said, okay, whatever. In in the words of Ron Burgundy, I'll eat the cat poop. And so (laughs) I I seal it up and I start the next 50 miles going, where where are they? Did they forget me? And it wasn't until I get to the next aid station, which back in that day, we did the Colorado Trail and we went through the Half Moon Campground, which was fantastic. I really love that section. I think that's like the next... No, actually, I saw you at Twin Lakes. 
right? Yeah. And and like, what what's going on? Where yeah, were you? We all they had... were literally eating bonbons, <laughs> literally eating bonbons, not figuratively. We were. We were. They were oh eating chocolate, and the windows we... were so fogged up because yeah. it was hot where they were inside the vehicle. They didn't see me. We did. We did. Oh, oh my gosh! When we saw you next, because it was. Absolutely horrible. All our tails were between our legs. We were, we, yes, we were. We were in the car because it was miserable outside. And it was my first year of teaching. And I had brought along a whole stack of my students' essays. And we knew that based on what you had told us about when to expect to see you, that we had at least another half an hour before we should get out of the car and start looking for you. And so it's all your fault, really. <laughs> Yeah, I'm punished for being faster. You were punished for being faster. You came in a good half hour earlier. And so I remember looking at my watch. and Yes, we were eating chocolates and laughing at some of the essays. (laughs) And I remember saying, I think we should go look for Dad now. And we went out and we waited and we waited and we waited. And then I started to worry. And I went into the aid station and I asked, has anyone seen this number and my husband and I was told, oh yes, he came through here a long time ago. <laughs> At which point, oh my gosh, I was horrified. And we ran back to the car, jumped in it and flew to the next aid station. And I'll never live this down. But <laughs> yeah, it makes for a good story. And you finished I did. the lead man and you went on to do three more lead man full competitions. Yeah, so I did the 2007, which I actually was lead man champion at which wasn't a thing then. It wasn't a thing. I, in fact, I didn't even know. I think Nick's added the times up and said, Dad, did you realize that you actually were the fastest? And I go, okay. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like now I, I think they give awards out for the – they didn't even acknowledge. Yeah. You know, it was like, okay, you guys made it through it. You you know, Ken would be really gruff. Okay, yeah, you guys made it. Good, good, good for you. Yeah, yeah. Sign up again. Yeah. <laughs> Ken, this is Ken Clover. So it's 2006, 2007. Uh, took a year off. I mean, when I say that, I did the bike ride 2008. Mm-hmm. And then I came back 2009, by far the hardest year. And then uh, 2011 was my last year. And then I needed replacement parts. Replacement parts being... Uh, well, I replaced my hip in 2013 and then my left hip in, uh, 2016. Yeah, that sounds right. So, so now you're not only a four-time lead man, you're a two-time titanium man. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. So was that first lead man the hardest race you've ever done? No, but at, no, not at all. What was, what was the hardest race you've ever 2009 done? 2009 was the hardest race. To my listeners out there today, I hope you're enjoying my episode with my husband, Mike McCarg. He is, without a doubt, my most generous patron. And without his encouragement and support, I could not be bringing you these weekly episodes. I would love it if you would join him in supporting my work. I am pretty much a one-person operation here unless I have a technical issue. And um, that's where my tech support comes in. But I would love it if you would go to patreon.com slash alligatorpreserves and see how you can support my work. I'm creating new fictional stories each month for certain patrons and narrating them. And I think you might enjoy them. A little bit different twist on, on my work. 
So stay tuned for more questions I'll ask my husband about racing and oh, maybe some other things. I do need to give you a little bit of a heads up here. This next section is emotionally heavy. It deals with why 2009 was the toughest race for Mike, and it has to do with the crash of a Special Operations Aviation Regiment helicopter that year. That's the year of the Black Hawk crash. That's right. And so... Because in your, for those who don't know, Mike, Mike is the emergency manager of our county, and he also volunteers for our local search and rescue organization. And Search and Rescue, by the way, is a completely volunteer organization. Members of Search and Rescue do not get paid. So yes, that was a horrendous year to tell the audience about that. So my friend, Jamshid, was here to run also with us for the Leadville 100 run. And we decided, because... That was the thing we did. Hey, let's do Hope Pass one last time on Wednesday to just half of it was I like doing Hope Pass. I like that section. And Jamshid was here. We we you know gave us a chance to talk and push each other. And, and, so. and this is the Wednesday between the hundred mile bike ride, which was on which is on a Saturday, and then the following Saturday is the hundred mile run. So this is right. the Wednesday ride in between those so two. So I'm out. Wednesday, I want to say we were in the early morning, not early, but you know, 10 o'clock or so in the morning. It takes you a while to do Hope Pass and back. I'm getting back. We're all looking forward to eating lunch and maybe taking a nap and getting ready for the 100 mile run that, you know, that would start four o'clock in the morning that Saturday. And my phone just starts blowing up. And, you know, this is 2009, so not really great cell coverage or anything else, but I have like a ton of messages. And so when I get closer, I listen to one of the messages and says, hey, I need you right now. We have a helicopter crash on Massive. And so I put aside any thoughts of anything other than grabbing my rescue pack and uh, reporting to the incident command post, which is set up kind of where the Half Moon Campground is around that area. And we know that the Blackhawk, Special Operations Blackhawk, had crashed. It's a 160th Special Operations uh, Aviation Regiment. Um, The 160th does a lot of training up here. And at that time, they said there were actually one or two people missing. So the tail rotor had hit um, above 14,000 feet, and it caused the fuselage to, to pinwheel. And... I grabbed a team and we went up to secure the airframe and see if we could locate the other uh, air crew members. So went up, which was like hiking massive, but with a 40 pound pack on. And when we got up there, the deputy or the sheriff deputized us to protect uh, uh, to protect the airframe and. So the sheriff deputized myself and a couple other folks who were actually on scene to be able to preserve the scene and also make sure that the deceased were not disturbed. We stayed that night with them right next to the airframe. The next morning, I worked with uh, special forces, which were inserted at the top of the ridgeline to be able to 
recover the uh, air crew from the Black Hawk. And so did that all day, finally came off the mountain um, toward the early evening, and then, then thought, well, I should probably get ready for the 100. And so I had to go pick up my race packet, and uh, I was truly exhausted at the start line <laughs> because, uh, you know, not only had I done that, you know, stayed up that night, I'd also been hiking back and forth up the ridge line, helping the SF Special Forces as well as Fight for Life, which made an exception. They don't usually, they only take people who are going to go to hospitals, but they made an exception in that case. And you were also emotionally exhausted. Definitely. And for those of you who don't know, Mike did 20 years in the Army and was a ranger and retired as a lieutenant colonel. And uh, and his job as emergency manager has worked closely with units coming here, military units coming here to train. So this was, uh, and, and for me, I was thinking, how are you even going to finish this race? Because I knew how exhausted you were. That was the only time, I think that was probably the only time I've ever been really worried about you out on the course. And you finished that race just under time. And I remember standing at the finish line with Ken Clover and expressing my concern for your health after having gone through this sad, horrendous ordeal. And I remember him kind of yelling at me, telling me to buck up. And, and, and Yeah, that was at May Queen. And you were didn't think I could finish. And, you know, Ken was like unfazed. Right. He was basically, he's like, of course, he's of course going to do it. He's going to do it. <laughs> of course and, he's going to do it. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, I, I wasn't thinking I wasn't, I mean, it wasn't even in my mind that I wasn't going to do every step I needed to do to finish. Mm-hmm. Even if, if I wasn't going to make the cutoff time, right? I was still going to finish the hundred miles. Yeah. And, I, yeah, I think I had 15 minutes to spare. Yeah, just about. Um, so, you know, not a great time, but it certainly, I don't know of any other time ever that required me to dig down that deep. Not ranger school, not best ranger competition, not anything I've done you know, there's a there's a Navy SEAL who he's on several podcasts, and he basically his he has a forty percent rule, and I'll I'll send you the I'll make you have the link for it because it's really good. Okay. He basically said, "Hey, you know what? When you think you're done, that you're completely finished, you got forty percent left in you." <laughs> and uh, I, you know, firsthand experience, I believe that. I believe that when you think you're ready to throw the towel in, that you can't go any further, you've got at least 40% more in you. So that's a good rule, and uh, I'll I'll make sure you you get that. Do you think it's easier to achieve these huge goals, these huge physical challenging goals, 
if you're an introvert rather than an extrovert. Some so someone like you, I mean, you an, an introvert gets their motivation, motivation from, from, the from within and inside, and an extrovert, someone like me, would be like, "Look at me! Look at me!" <laughs> I think there's you don't need to look at me. I think there's a degree of validity to that if you're intrinsically motivated as opposed to extrinsically motivated. Um, I mean, to be certainly people encouraging you on is helpful, but you know, one thing that you said about these things being physical feats, I would say, yeah, that's a component to it, but I would say much more they're mental feats than they are physical. Yeah. Physical is the mode. It's the construct for you to provide that platform for stretching yourself, but it's all mental, right? It's all mental. The first, whatever, if you're running the 50, it's the first 50, maybe physical, but the next, certainly the last 20 is, is a mental challenge much more than it is a physical challenge because you're you're never going to know what's going to go wrong. I mean, the first year, I think my right knee started like hurting like as if it had been uh, injured. I've never had a problem with my right knee ever, ever. And as soon as I, I think the next day was all gone. But you can't predict ever what you're going to feel like 80 miles into the run until, until you're doing it. Mm-hmm. I know that every New Year's Eve or sometime around that time, you sit down and often we sit down together and we look at the the year past and we look at what's coming up and we make, oh, I don't know if we call them resolutions, but we look at things that we could do differently or better. How do you start your day this year? How have you been, what, what, what changes have you made this year? Well, one of the things that I started looking at and they're not long they're five or six minutes but i've been looking at the youtube podcasts for uh, a couple just a couple folks that are truly inspirational and i'll play it over and over again and you know it's kind of like one of those if you don't have a coach it's like having a coach saying Stop procrastinating, get you know, get out there, get after it, do it. And you showed me one just before this episode from Jocko Wilnick. Jocko Wilnick. Yeah. And and so I I, I look at his quite a bit. And, and that that was fascinating. It was it was about when bad things happen. You can always derive something good mm-hmm. from that bad. Yeah. So I you know, I, I've been looking at those. I definitely structure my day so that I, I get, you know, the required mileage in after work typically because they're, you know, long rides and you can't really fit those in and start work at six o'clock. I mean, you could, I guess, if you started with a headlamp. So you listen to podcasts and I know that our son, Jake, out there, if you're listening, you're making little tick marks in the air for every time your father says podcast. <laughs> I also know that you read quite a bit, and I have to ask you, that: will you share with our listeners who your latest man crush is? Because I know you have a man crush, and I'm getting a little jealous. So 
I've, I'm on my fourth book on Teddy Roosevelt, and I have to say, he's my hero. He's the guy that I look at and and just in awe of. It's why at, he's he exemplifies tough when before people were even thinking about tough. As an example, mm-hmm. he's going to give this political speech. You know, it wasn't probably a super important speech. He gets shot. So somebody shoots him and they want to take him to the hospital because, well, he got shot. During the speech. Uh, during the speech. And he waves him off and he goes, no, I'm going to finish the speech. Then I'll take medical care. He had read 20,000 books before he became president. He would routinely read a book before lunch and then another book after lunch. He could speak five to six languages. And when he met with diplomats from Africa, or he could actually quote poetry from their language to them. That's insane. He had a photographic memory, so anything also, he that's saw... That's just not fair. So anything he saw, he remembered. Uh, he, at the time, was the youngest president we had ever had. Uh, just an amazing guy. His So the River of Doubt is his story of discovering the River of Doubt. That's the name of the river. And it never, it's in the Amazon basin and he's almost dead most of this most of this trek but he never gives up at all and he's got his legs all infected but he's in the amazon he's helping uh this expedition and he actually lives through this amazingly when i'm reading it i'm thinking this is no way he's gonna live through it but time and time again he was just such a tough person, but also so intellectually gifted. It was just unbelievable. He, I just can't say enough good things about him. He's awesome. All right. Teddy <laughs> Roosevelt is your man crush. Uh, we're on the newlywed game, you and I. And the question is, who is your wife's man crush? Oh, Johnny Depp for ah. sure. <laughs> Yay. We win. Yes, I've had a man crush on Johnny Depp for a very long time. As a matter of fact, the first year I was teaching my seventh grade English class, oh, I don't know how it came up. We were talking about something, and and I let on that I really loved Johnny Depp. And if he had ever shown up at our classroom door, I told my students I would dismiss them for the rest of the day. (laughs) And, of course, their response was all, ooh, ooh, miss, oh, gross. (laughs) And then I got Johnny Depp folders from some of them. So that was kind of sweet. Yeah. Didn't you have a life-size Johnny Depp poster? Oh, I d- yeah, I did. Like a, not a poster, like a, one of those cardboard yeah, yeah. stand-up things? I, I, I did. I did. You probably still have it, don't you? I'm not telling. <laughs> so this, got, this kind of leads me to my one of my last questions. Well, my, my real last question is, what's the secret to a happy relationship if... You, let's say you, or one one person in the relationship loves epic challenges and the partner only pretends to. <laughs> so I, I think what you're suggesting is for me to talk about when in Virginia, after we'd been married, uh, what, 20 years, over 20 years, and I, of course, naively thought, that Laurel was really sacrificing staying home, like with the 
Actually, it wasn't even with the kids. I think I was bringing the, the boys with me. Must have been with it, the dog or... It, no, you, you were going to stay, yeah, with the dog and the girls from the neighborhood. Or, and, or, or I, had to, I had to make sure that the seeds and the new grass were watered. It, I, so I thought naively, like, wow, this is a huge sacrifice. Uh, she's staying home. And then at some point, either because you'd had your second glass of wine or scotch or something, you go, you, you know, I don't really like to do any of this stuff. <laughs> and it's great that you take the boys because I don't really want to go at all. <laughs> yeah, so it was well over 20 years of marriage before I realized that that wasn't sacrifice. That was you were doing the happy dance that I was off, you know, mosquito having, bitten. Having type two fun with our sons. Yeah. Was that before or after I told you I was a chocoholic? I don't recall. Might have, might have been before. Yeah. Yeah, so I could stay home and eat chocolate while they were out getting mosquito bitten and working on that type 2 fun. <laughs> but but in all seriousness, this happens sometimes. And I remember in the episode with David and Jana Zangerly and their tandem bike racers. And I remember talking about that and... You know, were there ever any arguments or you know, racing with a racing with a partner or doing any kind of outside exercise experience with a partner? Sometimes it can be difficult for one if the other is so much stronger and so much better. So in, in our early years, when I would bike with you, I would try to keep up with you. And of course, I would always feel a little bit of resentment because I couldn't. And then we got to the point where we'd say, okay, let's just do this for time. We'll go out a half an hour and then turn around in half an hour. And so we'd start together when we'd finish together. But the middle part was always kind of squishy. And you'd do the out and back kind of thing, which you'd go out and then you'd come back and check on me, out and come back and check on me. And that was lovely, but also a little bit discouraging because I just couldn't keep up with you. So I guess what I'm saying is tandems work sometimes. Tandem kayaks, tandem bikes, you're shaking your head. All right, we're never going to do a tandem. We have a tandem kayak, and that's awesome. Tandem bikes, not in the future. Not in the cards. <laughs> so, partners out there, if you have unequal racing abilities, work it out. Talk about it. Be honest. You don't have to hide the fact that you're not really sacrificing when you stay home. You don't have to do everything together all the time, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Mike, this was a lot of fun. I could ask you a million more questions which I know most of the answers to. And I also know that you're not really a big breakfast eater. So uh, my question, my ending question is usually what kind of preserves would you spread on your toast in the morning? Those would be alligator preserves. Those would be alligator preserves. <laughs> to this day, 35 years of marriage later, I still can't understand why he doesn't eat breakfast. I can't, I can't. And sometimes he even forgets to eat. I don't even get that. It makes no sense to me. We're kind of different. But yeah, 35 years. I think maybe I'll have you on another time and we'll talk about other things if you'd be willing. Absolutely. Well, thanks, darling. <laughs> now get to work. <laughs> You're funny. That concludes my first interview with the man who challenged me from the first moment I met him back in our senior year at West Point. There are many, many stories surrounding our meeting and my proposal right before take seats in the mess hall one time at lunch that, that one day. Ah, so many stories. 
I will have today's show notes with links that we talked about and whatever photos Mike will send me later on on my website at ledvillelaurel.com. So hop on over there. Please share this with your friends if you enjoyed this and other episodes. Subscribe to Alligator Preserves on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And consider supporting me on Patreon. Help my husband out here with this service I'm providing. Go to patreon.com slash alligatorpreserves. And please join me next time when I'll talk about something completely different. Bye. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at amazon.com.